I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 12. First Chronicles chapter 12, David is in an interesting situation. He has been anointed as king by Samuel, but he has not yet taken the throne. And instead, he's an exile in the city of Hebron. And First, Corinthians, or First Chronicles chapter 12 gives us a list of the people who came out to David in Hebron to identify with a rejected king. And I'm especially impressed by one group of people that are mentioned in this chapter, and that's in verse 32, the sons of Issachar. And it says about the sons of Issachar that they were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Sons of Issachar were people who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I'm convinced that God is still looking for sons of Issachar today. People who will come out and identify with a rejected king, Jesus. And people who will see His kingdom come to reality and restore His church to what God wants it to be. God is looking for people who understand the times. We live in a time of great urgency. The Bible calls it the last days. Jesus said it was like the days of Noah right before the flood. And like the days of Lot right before the fire came down on Sodom and Gomorrah. We have people today living in open sin and going through life as usual, indifferent to the judgment of God. We live in a day of urgency. We live in the days when Jesus is coming back And we need people who understand the times. We also live in a day of great potential. We live in a time when the projected population of the world will double in our lifetime. When when in our future there will not simply be metropolises, there will be megalopolises because there's so many people. And those people mean potential. And we live in a day when people seem to be hungry for spiritual things. The great interest today in angels. There's a great interest today in the future. We see that by the marketing of psychics today. It's not uncommon to hear people today talking about life after death, talking about life on other planets, talking about reincarnation. There's a spiritual hunger today. And we need to understand the times. Thirdly, this is a time of great need. In 1900, The United States had 27 churches for every 10,000 people. Today we have 12 churches for every 10,000 people. You say, well, maybe the churches are bigger. Well, George Barna in his book, Marketing the Church, says that the average Protestant congregation in this country has 50 to 60 adults coming each Sunday. And it's estimated that 80 to 85% of all North American churches are either static in growth are declining, which means that only 10 to 15% of churches are growing. We need people who understand the times, who realize the potential, sense the urgency, recognize the need, but that alone is not enough. I went to Bible school with a fellow who was impressed by the urgency that Jesus was coming back. In fact, he was so impressed by that urgency that he quit Bible school halfway through his first year. 
He was going to go back home to Texas and impact the world. I asked about him a few years later. He was driving a bus and not even going to church. See, there's a fellow who understood the times, but he didn't have the second characteristic of the sons of Issachar. He didn't know what the church should do. Where do we find out what the church should do? Well, I don't know of a better passage than the passage we're in this morning in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Because here it shows us the characteristics of the early church. And I've picked out seven of them. Number one, they were separated. The first thing that these 3,000 people did when they received Peter's message in verse 41 was to be baptized. And that was a big statement for these new believers. Because they didn't have a church building with a baptismal tank. So where did 3,000 people get baptized? Well, I assume they went down into the Kidron Valley and were baptized in the brook Kidron. In full view of Golgotha where 50 days earlier Jesus had been crucified. And in full view of the crowds who were there on the day of Pentecost, they made a statement saying, we are identifying ourselves with the rejected Messiah. We will follow Him. They were drawing a clear line. No more secret disciples like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. They were coming out publicly saying, we are separated from the world and we are separated unto Jesus Christ. From day one, they took a stand. And that's in keeping with Jesus' mandate because He didn't say, go and make decisions. He said, go and make disciples. Number one, they were separated. Number two, they were committed. And we see that in verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to... Now stop right there. What can you honestly say that you are continually devoting yourself to? Your career, your family, your sports team, your hobby, your favorite television show. These early Christians continually devoted themselves to the essential elements of their new life together. And we're told about four of them in verse 42. The first is the apostles' teaching. Now that's interesting to me because 50 days earlier the apostles were anything but teachers. In fact, 50 days earlier, they didn't even understand the Gospel. What happened to them? Well, several things. Number one, they had seen the risen Christ. And in Luke chapter 24 and verse 45, it says, He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Secondly, they had received the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised in John 16, 13, would guide them into all truth. And thirdly, they had received the apostolic gift. And so these new believers were now continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now when we read the word teaching, we often think of information. But the apostles were doing more than communicating facts. Jesus didn't say, I am come that you might have information. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. And the early Christians continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, not simply to be informed, but to be transformed. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, go, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
You see, they were learning these things not simply to impress others, not simply to be able to quote verses. They were learning these things so that they could observe them, so that they could live them out. One of my favorite quotes is by Soren Kierkegaard. He said, people think that the preacher is an actor and they are come to be his critics. What they don't know is that they are the actors and he is the prompter off stage reminding them of their lost lines. This is not the stage where the real action takes place. That stage is the world. Your neighborhood, your place of employment, your home. Teaching puts the Word of God in you so it can be lived out on the stage of life. Teaching equips us. Teaching nourishes us. And the early church understood that, and so they couldn't get enough. Second thing they were continually devoted to was fellowship. We usually think of fellowship as picnics, volleyball, and potluck supper. But those things in and of themselves are not fellowship. You can go into our fellowship hall and not fellowship. Because the word fellowship means to share in common with. Fellowship is when I share my common life in Christ with you. Fellowship is when our conversations and our actions encourage and challenge and build us up in our common faith. Third thing they were continually devoting themselves to was the breaking of bread. That last Passover meal, Jesus took the bread and the cup and He said, do this in remembrance of Me. And the early church did that continually. Verse 46 says, day by day, house to house, they broke bread. It took them a long time to understand why Jesus had to die and when they finally understood it, they didn't want to forget. They didn't even want to be at the cross the first time. Now they were continually going back to the foot of the cross and remembering the bread, Jesus' body, the cup, Jesus' blood, and the sacrifice He made there. Fourth thing they were committed to was prayer. Now, the disciples had never been real big on prayer. In fact, the impression I get as I read the Gospels is that when Jesus was praying all the time, the disciples were just standing around whittling and doing some other things. Because in, Act, or in, John, or in Luke chapter 11, it says one time when Jesus had finished praying, the disciples came to Him and said, Teach us to pray. We're just hanging around doing nothing. Teach us how to pray. But apparently they didn't get it real good because the night Jesus was arrested in the garden, He told the disciples to pray. And what did they do? They slept. But now prayer had become a priority. In Acts 1.14 it says they were devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts 6.4 it says they were devoting themselves to prayer. And here in Acts 2.42 it says they were devoting themselves to prayer. Prayer had gone from, from a formality to a reality. It had gone from theory to practice. And as I said last week, prayer is really a measure of our spiritual temperature. It measures our dependency upon God. When I don't pray, what am I saying? God, I don't need You. It also measures our effectiveness because Jesus said, apart from Me, you can do what? Nothing. And let me add one to that. It also measures the depth of our relationship with Him. Because when I don't pray, I'm really saying, Lord, I don't want to know You anymore. I don't want to get to know You any further. 
And so prayer says, Lord, I'm depending on you. Prayer says, Lord, I know that only you can operate effectively in this world, and so I need you for that. And prayer also says, Lord, I want to know you more. You know, we live in a day when expectations in the Christian community are at an all-time low. We give people stars just for showing up. I heard one pastor say at a pastor's conference, aim low, they're riding Shetlands. Well, I think when it comes to expectations, we ought to aim high because we have a high calling in Jesus Christ. The early church continually devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. How about you? If you will take an honest look at your life, you are devoting yourself to something. Is it the essential elements of your Christian life? Third characteristic of the early church is that they were excited. Verse 43. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. There was a sense of awe in the early church. Now that word awe is the Greek word phobos, which means fear or holy terror. It's the same word used in Acts 5.11 to describe the reaction of the people to the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. It's the same word used in Luke 7.16 to describe the reaction of the people in Nain when Jesus raised the widow's son to life. Just imagine how you would feel if someone was struck dead in your presence or someone was raised to life in your presence, and that is awe. The early church kept feeling a sense of awe. That was their constant reaction. Why? Because they sensed that God was at work in their midst. They had just seen their numbers multiplied 25 times in one day. But there was no pride there. They weren't walking around saying, look what we did. They were saying, wow, look what God did. And not only that, if you look at the end of verse 43, it says, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. They didn't come to church saying, same old, same old. There was a sense of excitement. There was a sense of expectancy. They didn't know what God was going to do next. In Acts chapter 3, a lame man stood up and walked. In, in Acts chapter 5, They took the sick and laid them on the side of the road, and when Peter's shadow fell on them, they were healed. In Acts chapter 9, Peter told a paralyzed man to stand up and walk. And then later in that chapter, he raised a dead woman to life. That would generate some excitement. There was a sense of awe. There was a sense that God was at work. Now, let me say a couple things about these miracles. First of all, they were wonders and signs. We talked about those words back in verse 22. Wonders describes the reaction of the people. Signs describes that they were pointing towards something. There was a purpose to them. And we really discover that purpose later in Acts chapter 9 when we see that Peter healed the paralyzed man. Verse 35 says this, After he rose up, all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. What was the sign? The sign was the miracle, but it was pointing to Christ. 
Later in that same chapter, when Peter raised Dorcas to life in the city of Joppa, it says in verse 42, and it became known to all, to all in Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. The miracle was done as a sign pointing to the Lord. Second thing I want you to note about these miracles was that they were not done by every believer. Verse 43 says at the end that they were done through the apostles. Now others did miracles as well, such as Philip in Acts chapter 8, but primarily this occurred at the hands of the apostles. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 12 that that is one of the signs of an apostle. It says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So you see, these miracles were purposeful. They were pointing to the Lord and they were pointing to the apostles declaring that they were indeed the messengers for Christ. Now today we no longer have apostles. There were only twelve. There is not a succession to the apostles. In Matthew 19.28, Jesus said to the apostles, Truly I say to you that you who have followed Me, in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Only twelve thrones for the twelve apostles. When James was martyred in Acts chapter 12, we don't read that he was replaced because there was no succession in fact, one of the requirements for an apostle in Acts 1.22 is that he had to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ. That would tend to shorten the list of candidates today. You say, well, what about the apostle Paul? Well, listen to what he says about his apostleship in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 8, And last of all, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. You've heard of somebody being born prematurely. Paul says he was born post-maturely. He wasn't born along with the other apostles. He was born after the fact, and Jesus made a personal visit to allow him to witness his resurrection on the road to Damascus. There's no need for a succession of apostles today because their ministry is foundational in nature. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 says that the church is being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Their ministry laid the foundation for the church which is being built upon that today. And we see that vividly portrayed in Revelation chapter 21 where John sees the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride for Christ. And it says it had 12 foundation stones and on those 12 foundation stones were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. You say, well, if we don't have apostles today who are doing miracles, then how do we confirm that a preacher is actually from God? Well, that's easy. We simply go back to the apostles' teaching. We simply go back to the foundation which they have laid, which is the Word of God. We take what someone says and we hold it up to the Word of God and see if it, see if it lines up there. You say, well, 
Is God still doing miracles today? Absolutely. Only He's not doing miracles through the shadow of a man. He is now doing miracles through the prayers of people. God is at work in the midst of His people. And there ought to be a sense of awe today. There ought to be an excitement that says, what's He going to do next? And a lot of churches have lost that. In a lot of churches, their vision is not how much can God do. Their vision seems to be, how can we hang on for one more year? A lot of churches start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 dull. And then they say, next week we'll have services as usual. That's the problem. You see, the early church had an intense, unshakable belief that God was able to accomplish anything. And they expected Him to do so. And because of that, there was a sense of excitement. Fourth characteristic, they were sharing. Notice verse 44. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. The early church was a sharing people. First of all, they shared themselves. It says in verse 44, they were all together. Verse 46, they were all of one mind. Verse 46, they were in each other's houses, eating meals together, going to the temple together, breaking bread together. Now how do 3,000 people who are growing in number each day share that kind of closeness? Well, I think the answer is found in Paul's exhortation to us in Romans chapter 15. And there he says, Now may God grant you to be of the same mind with one another, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. How did Christ accept you? Grace? Mercy? Forgiveness? How are you to accept others? The same way. So you don't turn around and look at somebody and say, how did you get in here? Aren't they checking references at the door? You see, when you have tasted grace, the question is not how did you get in, the question is, how did I ever get in? The early church was really challenged in this area because in a few chapters, in chapter 6, it makes this statement. It says, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. In all likelihood, that would include some of the chief priests who actually plotted to kill Jesus. How are they going to accept these guys? And then you come to Acts chapter 8, and who gets saved? The Samaritans. These were the people that James and John wanted to call fire out of heaven to burn up in Luke chapter 9. How are they going to accept these guys? And then one chapter later, in Acts chapter 9, Saul gets saved. A Christian killer. He's probably directly responsible for the death of some of their close friends, in fact, some of their family members. How are they going to accept him? And then one chapter later, in Acts chapter 10, who gets saved? The Gentiles. Their worst enemies of all. How are they ever going to accept them? The answer is, they would accept them the way Christ had accepted 
each of them. By grace, by mercy, by forgiveness. They shared themselves in the early church. Secondly, they shared their possessions. Verse 44 says they had all things in common. Verse 45 says they sold property and possessions and shared them with those who had need. Many people had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. They planned to be there about a week. Instead, they got saved and they just stayed there. So these people needed hospitality. Some people probably lost their jobs, got kicked out of their homes because of their profession of faith in Christ. Other people were just poor because Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. How did the early church respond to those needs? Well, it says that they were, they were going, what's mine is yours. We have all things in common. I read several years ago about something that happened on the campus the University of Wisconsin. They rode bikes a lot, and so uh, they had a policy there that if you wanted your bike to be sort of communal property, you could paint it white. And then you could ride to class, and rather than taking a chain and tying up your bike, you could ride it to, to class, leave it. When you came out, you could find any other white bike and ride it to your next class. I don't know how that worked out on the University of Wisconsin, but that's really the attitude in the early church. They were saying, whatever I've got is painted white. Whatever I've got, I'm willing to share with you. But they didn't just stop there. It says also in verse 45, they began to sell property and possessions and give to those in need. Now that's pretty impressive. They could have said, I don't have any money right now. I don't have any liquid assets. But you see, they were not just giving present cash, they were giving future cash. They were selling their investments to meet needs today. That's not just excess giving, that is sacrificial giving. And John says, that's the expression of love. 1 John 3.16, John said, we know love by this, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then John says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. The early church loved each other. And they shared their possessions. Now let me add a footnote here. This was not communism as we know it today. I'll give you several reasons for that. Number one, verse 45, where you see the words selling and sharing are in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which denotes a continuous action. This was an ongoing activity of the church. The apostles didn't come together and say, we're going to have a commune. Everybody sell everything you've got right now and we'll put it into a communal pot. No, this was an ongoing activity. As they saw needs, they were moved to meet those needs and they chose to sell their property. It's also, secondly, a principle in Christian living that our giving is prompted by the Spirit of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Our giving is a response 
to the prompting of the Spirit of God in what we purpose in our heart. It's not mandated by the church. Thirdly, it's clear from verse 46 that people still owned houses because they were meeting from house to house. Fourth reason, it's clear from Peter's words to Ananias in Acts 5.4 that this kind of giving was voluntary. Ananias and Sapphira sinned not by refusing to part with their possessions. They sinned by lying to the Holy Spirit. And then let me give you a fifth reason. In no other church described in the book of Acts was there a pattern of selling property. And again, I return to what we've said earlier in the book of Acts. Be careful when you come to the book of Acts and you try to make what you see there a pattern for today. This same pattern we see in Acts chapter 2, we don't see repeated in the other churches. They shared themselves and they shared their possessions. And what I like is the last phrase in verse 46 because it really describes their attitude. It says they did so with sincerity of heart. Or singleness of heart. Literally, with simplicity of heart. We often try to make giving complicated. We say, let's see, if I sell that and give it to you, how much will I have left? That complicates things. They were doing this with simplicity. They said, you've got a need. I've got what will meet your need. I'm going to give to meet your need. That's simple. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It literally means free from rocks. Which I think the rocks in your heart are usually rocks of selfishness. So it's saying you've got a smooth heart. There's, there's no rocks there. There's no rocks of thinking about self. It's just a simple response to God and the needs of others to say, I'll meet those needs in simplicity. Fifth characteristic of the early church is that they were joyful You see that at the end of verse 46 as well. It says, with gladness. They were happy. You get the idea that they were enjoying themselves. They weren't bored. They weren't sad. They weren't defeated. They were victoriously happy. They were bubbling over. But this wasn't the kind of fickle joy that was dictated by circumstances. Because a little later in Acts chapter 5, we find that the, the apostles were arrested and beaten. And this, what, this is what it says in verse 41. They went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced around the meal table and they rejoiced in suffering. You say, well, how could they do that? Well, the answer is because they had the joy of the Lord. Jesus, speaking to the Father in prayer in John 17, 13, said, But now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus says, I'm leaving so that they might have my joy. Now, how did Jesus leaving give us His joy? Well, it came through the Holy Spirit. And in Galatians 6.22, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. In Acts chapter 13, verse 52, it says the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were a joyful church. Sixth characteristic, they were praising. 
Verse 47 says, praising God. C.S. Lewis said, as long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about eyes or light or print or spelling. And then he said, the perfect church service would be one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. That was true of the early church. Their attention was on God. In the temple, from house to house, day by day by day, they were praising God. And I'm sure some days it flowed freely, and some days it was like Hebrews 13, 15, it was a sacrifice of praise. Circumstances were difficult and it was a sacrifice to put my lips on the altar and say, God, I worship you. Some days they praised God with their hands full of blessings and some days, like Paul and Silas, they praised God with their hands in chains. But they were continually praising God and that should be the characteristic of any church. Psalm 147 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. You know what that last statement means? It means praise looks good on you. I like that. So you weren't created to be grumpy. You weren't created to be selfish. You weren't created to look tough. You were created to praise God. And the psalm writer says, when you praise, it looks good on you. If you're thinking about getting a makeover, forget it. Just stop complaining and start praising God, and you'll look good. Psalm 22.3 says, God inhabits the praises of His people. A great statement. When we praise, there's a special sense in which God comes there and feels at home. I think I've been in church services where God wasn't. And I know I've been in church services where he was very much at home. And it has to do with the hearts of believers as we praise him together. The early church was a praising church. Seventh and final characteristic, they were a growing church. Verse 47 says, they were having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let me point out three quick things about salvation here. Number one, the Lord does the adding. It's His business. A lot of people today are trying to figure out methods how to get people saved. You don't need any tricks. You simply have to do it God's way and God does the adding. Second thing about salvation, He does it often. It says day by day. Some churches would have to change this verse to year by year we see somebody saved. It's happening day by day third thing about salvation it's not a process I ask some people about their salvation they say well I've, I'm not sure I've been getting saved over several years well you can't get saved over several years you may come to understand the gospel over several years 3,000 people got saved on the day of Pentecost one day and the Lord was adding to their number day by day people were being saved let me also add three things about the early church. 
Number one, their circle of interaction didn't end with the church. They didn't just have a holy huddle and stay there. They went out and impacted the world around them. Secondly, lost people liked them. Some of you need to underline this. It says they were having favor with all the people. I've had Christians tell me nobody likes me, but that's just because I'm a Christian and I'm committed to the Lord. Think again. If you're a Christian committed to the Lord, then people ought to want you as a neighbor. They ought to like being around you. You ought to have favor with them. Why? Not because you compromise, not because you water down the message, but because you take a clear stand for Christ and He's changing your life. Third thing we can say about the early church is that evangelism was a very normal process. It says here people were being saved day by day. They gathered together to worship and to be equipped, and they went out to be salt and light in the world. And oftentimes I've explained our church, uh, sort of our, our design for our church as not a lighthouse. Some people draw the church as a lighthouse. It's, a, it's up here on the hill. It's got a light shining out and trying to reach everybody in the community. That's not really the way we see ourselves as a church. We are not simply a lighthouse. If you want a figure to define our church, I would say the best figure would be a gas station. Because you come in here on Sunday, you get equipped, you get filled up with the Word of God, you go out, you impact your world, you come back next week, you get refilled, re-equipped, you go back out and serve. That's what I see in the early church here. They gathered together to be equipped and to worship the Lord, and day by day they were impacting their world in their community, in their neighborhood, at their workplace. That's what ought to be happening. People ought to be saved every day. Not in this building, but out on the stage in the world. God is still looking for some sons of Issachar. People who understand the times and people who know what the church should do to be separated, committed, excited, sharing, joyful, praising, and growing. And my prayer is that God would allow us to be those people in our generation in this community. We're going to close in prayer and before we do, I'm going to ask Janelle Francis and Wynn Fredenberg to, to come forward. And then after the service, I'm going to ask you to encourage these two that have been baptized this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this snapshot of the early church and the things that we see that characterize them. And Father, as we look at this picture, we pray that we might take an honest look at our own lives today and see where we fall short. And Father, we might by Your Spirit be convicted to make some adjustments in our own lives so that we, like them, might turn our world upside down for Jesus Christ. We pray in His worthy name. Amen.